that she denied it. That was the difference was that she went up for answer and considered that important. So I directed her to bring in her dreams, that she would find them and bring them in the next session she brought them. And uh, they were fully typed out by herself at the time they occurred. That's very important, back in 61. And uh, on a careful inspection of that with her story, they were exactly alike with one difference, that in the dreams she went up both a ramp and steps. She and Barney were both taken up ramp and steps. That's all. Otherwise, they were exactly alike. And uh, still she would not accept fully that they were the same. Well, that gave me an answer at that point, that uh, this fantastic story uh, was uh, her dreams. And therefore, we could fit that uh, very well with reality. Uh, These dreams of that sort are highly admissible. And uh, so I was satisfied. I didn't have to look any further for an explanation. I wouldn't have to accept under our present uh, conditions the existence of this just amount of space, however they describe whatever they were. Dr. Silent, we're, we're going to take a break now. And when we come back, I'd like to ask you about... Uh... The voice you just heard is the voice of Dr. Benjamin Simon, the man I referenced at the end of the last episode. He was being interviewed on The Larry Glick Show, a Boston-based radio program about the Hill case in 1975. At first, it seems as if he's not interested in talking at all. Glick thanks him for coming on, and Dr. Simon responds with an, mm-hmm. But the moment that Glick starts asking questions, Dr. Simon comes to life, and he goes into the story of his involvement with the Hills. As you heard on the recording... He didn't believe the hills were abducted by aliens. He believed that something happened to them, but couldn't quite put his finger on it. But mainly, he believed that Barney absorbed Betty's dream material and conflated it for his own. Until last week, I couldn't understand how he could arrive at that conclusion. Then it hit me. I'm not going to get into it just yet, but from the audio I played you, you get an idea of where his stance is. I also wondered, who is Dr. Benjamin Simon, and what his credentials were, and I've got to say, he's a very impressive individual. Dr. Simon was a Russian immigrant, and came to the United States when he was very young. He earned a BA in chemistry in 1925, and earned his master's two years later both degrees from Stanford. He earned his M.D. in 1931 from the Washington University School of Medicine. Just a really intelligent person here. His history with hypnosis and hypnotherapy goes way deeper than I ever thought. When I see Dr. Simon in my head, I think of Gene Simmons, the towering figure on stage, stepping up to the mic and saying the words, You wanted the best? You got the best. Uh, Let me be clear, I am not a KISS fan, but I had friends that were, and my mind goes to weird places at times, but Dr. Simon was the best for this case. He became interested in hypnosis in 1922 at Stanford. He served as a hypnotic subject for an experiment conducted at John Hopkins University. 
I almost want to picture a pre-MK Ultra kind of experiment taking place, but MK Ultra is 30 years in the future, so I'll table my dark conspiracy theories. In 1934, he began to use hypnosis during his psychiatric residency and continued to develop it and use it from time to time. He continued to find more extensive uses for the practice, and in 1942, he started to receive training to use it in his practice. Dr. Simon would go on to serve as a lieutenant colonel in the Army, establishing the first psychiatric center at Mason General Hospital on Long Island to treat patients returning home from the fronts during World War II. He treated soldiers afflicted by amnesia and hysteria, Essentially, he treated soldiers who had post-traumatic stress disorder. In the treatment of soldiers, he would use deep trance hypnosis to get at the root of the problem. Sometimes he would use narcosynthesis in the process. In other words, he would use sodium pentothal, or barbiturates, which are said to aid in the recall of events. Basically, truth here. His success rates were so high with this method that a movie was made about his work called Let There Be a Light. The film was directed by John Huston, and Benjamin Simon served as an advisor. Many saw him as some kind of miracle worker. Those who suffered from blindness as a result of psychological maladies were able to see again. Those who couldn't walk took their first steps in months. Any soldier that suffered from a psychological condition, Dr. Simon could treat it. When he finally left the military, he established a private practice in Boston. Oh yeah, he also taught at Yale and Harvard, too. In other words, Dr. Simon was the best, and under his treatment, you got the best. Before we explore the Hill's testimony under hypnosis, it should be noted that in John G. Fuller's book about the case, The Interrupted Journey, and as stated to the Hills directly, Hypnosis is not a direct path that leads to objective truth. Hypnosis is kind of like a lie detector test. It's the truth as the subject believes it to be. In the case of alien abduction, there is no foolproof method to arrive at the complete truth. But having a second eyewitness around doesn't hurt. And with that said, my name is Rob Christofferson, and this is episode 13 of the Our Strange Guys podcast. When the Hills walked into Dr. Benjamin Simon's office on Saturday, December 14, 1963, they had a lot of questions for him. They were under the impression that what he did was similar to stage hypnotism. Dr. Simon spent most of that time explaining how he used the technique in his practice. Barney was curious about hallucinations and asked the doctor. He demonstrated, and Barney saw his office door open on its own 
a white dog, come in the room and jump on his lap, lick him in the face, and jump back down before exiting the room. Barney said he felt these things, but they were in reality all hallucinations. I don't know how he did this, but that's pretty damn amazing. I mean, is that even fucking ethical? We'll table that. We'll table it, okay? From the beginning, Dr. Simon used hypnosis in such a way that made it seem like he was trying to arrive at some objective truth. He would hypnotize the hills separately and would do so in a soundproof examining room. He would institute a post-hypnotic amnesia after each session to prevent the couple from disclosing their experiences to one another after they left the office. The hypnosis sessions commenced on February 22, 1964, and concluded in April of that year. For the next two months, Dr. Simon removed the post-hypnotic amnesia in slow bits until their last session on June 27th. Most of what I told you concerning the events that lead up to this portions of missing time are accurate. There is one piece of information I left out. It's kind of inconsequential and doesn't really add anything to their story, but under hypnosis, Barney attested to one of the beings, not the leader, but the one he compared to a red-headed Irishman. He claimed that while he was staring at the craft through binoculars, that man turned to him from whatever control panel he was attending to, looked at Barney, and smiled. Not maliciously. In fact, Barney made it seem like, as opposed to the leader, this individual had a kinder expression. Still, fuck that. But moving on. Betty had vague memories after the first set of beeping sounds. She remembered driving for a few more miles before Barney made a mysterious turn down a road just off the main highway. A short distance into the woods, a group of short, diminutive figures stood in the middle of the road. There were approximately 11 of them. And when it halted, the being split into two groups of three. Three walked to Barney's side, and three to Betty's. Barney wanted to reach for his gun, but felt like he would be harmed by the men if he did. Three men assisted Barney from the car. The eyes of the leader pushed into his head again, and instructed him to keep his eyes closed. Barney was supported by the three men under his arms. The tops of his shoes scraped against the ground. Betty grew fearful with each step they took toward her side of the car. She wanted to run, tried to hatch a plan to do so, but found the car door taken from her, being opened by the creatures. Three men escorted Betty, and more than anything, she desperately wanted to wake from whatever dream this was. When she opened her eyes, her fears were realized. She was in a living nightmare. She looked over to Barney, whose limp body the creatures were carrying. She called to him, to wake him, but he didn't move. She grew angry with her captors, until one of them turned to her and asked, Oh, is his name Barney? This being reassured Betty that there was nothing to fear, that when they were through, would be returned to their car unharmed. On the long and winding path to the craft, 
There was no light projected toward them, giving Betty the impression that they were entering the craft from the rear. There was a ramp that extended out of the craft. They carried Barney on board first. While Betty struggled a little, she desperately wanted to run still, but the being reminded her that the longer she struggled, the longer it would take. She was escorted to a room, and Barty was escorted past her. Though their examinations occurred in different rooms, there is a remarkable resemblance in their testimony concerning the description of said rooms. They both attested to them being similar to a doctor's examination room, but still different. The table was smaller, about four feet long, designed for people shorter than the hills. Before we get into the examinations themselves, I'd like to point out the similarities between their testimonies. Both Betty and Barney claimed that the beings opened their mouths and communicated with each other. Barney described the sounds as a quivering and oh, 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 oh. Betty described it similarly, claiming the creatures made an ah sound. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? We've got the makings of an alien, disturbed covered band that's down with the sickness. So the rooms are similar, at least their testimony concerning it is. The beings talked, a detail which most people don't seem to know about. The other big similarities are in the actual examinations that they received. They are identical in a lot of ways. We'll begin with Betty's examination. Hers is much more detailed, due to the fact that Barney's eyes were closed for all of it. Here is Betty's recounting of the examination. I go into this room, and some of the men come in the room with this man who speaks English, and they stay for a minute. I don't know who they are. I guess they're the crew, but they only stay for a minute. The man who speaks English is there, and another man comes in, and I haven't seen him before. I think he's a doctor. There's a stool. A white... Is it white? I don't know if it's white or chrome. There's a stool, and they put me on the stool. There's a little bracket. My head is resting against the bracket. I have a my blue dress on, and they push up the sleeve of my dress, and they look at my arm here, and they look at my arm. They turn my arm over, and they look at it. They have a machine. I don't know what it is. They bring the machine over, and they put it... I don't know what kind of machine. It's something like a microscope, only a microscope with a big lens. And they put a... I don't know. I had an idea they were taking a picture of my skin. And they both look through this machine here and here, and then they talk. I don't know. I couldn't understand what they were saying. And then they took something like a letter opener, only it wasn't. They scraped my arm here. They scraped, and they looked like little skin... You know how your skin gets dry and flaky sometimes, like little particles of skin? They put... There was something like a little piece of cellophane plastic? Something like that. And they put what came off on the plastic. The examiner opens my eyes and looks in them with a light. And he opens my mouth, and he looks at my throat, and my teeth, and he looks in my ears. And then he takes like a swab or q-tip, 
and he puts it in my left ear, and he puts this on another piece of material. The leader takes it and rolls it up and puts it in the top drawer. Oh, then he feels my hair, and then the back of my neck, and they take a couple stands of my hair, and they pull it out, and he gives this to the leader, and he wraps that up and puts that in the top drawer. Then he takes something that may be like scissors. I don't know what it is. And then they cut a piece of my hair here. They cut off a piece of it and he gives it to him. And then he feels my neck through my shoulders around my collarbone. And then they take off my shoes and look at my feet and hands. They look at my hands all over and he takes... Uh, the light is very bright, and so some... I don't always... My eyes aren't open. I am still a little scared, too. I'm not particularly interested in looking at them, and so I try to keep my eyes shut, and then I do open, you know, not all the time. I sort of give myself a little relief by not looking at them. I shut my eyes, and he takes something, and he goes underneath my fingernail, and then he takes something, I, I don't know, probably manicure scissors or something, and he goes underneath my fingernail. They look at my feet all over. I don't think they do anything to them. They just feel my feet and toes and all. For the final portion of Betty's examination, she describes what they called a pregnancy test. First, the being fails to comprehend what a zipper does. Here, Betty describes how the being tried to remove her dress. He decides to remove my dress. Now he is confused because he doesn't know how to remove my dress. So I sit up, and that's when he sees the zipper, but he doesn't know how to handle it. And so he starts tugging at it, and I can almost hear the stitching rip. So I reach behind and start to pull the zipper down, and then he seems to get the idea, and he starts pulling the zipper down too. So it did get torn in a few places, but not much. It should be noted that the tears in Betty's dress are consistent with this event. The fabric that attached the zipper to the dress was slightly torn. First, the examiner had a device with a cluster of needles on the end of it. He used this device to examine Betty's spinal column, as well as several other areas on her body. Next... Betty described the examiner bringing forth a needle about four to six inches long with a tube attached to it. The examiner explained that this was a pregnancy test, but it didn't resemble any such procedure in modern medicine. In fact, if it resembled anything, it was amniocentesis, a procedure designed to test the genetic makeup of a fetus in the womb. In 1961, amniocentesis was in experimental stages, and so were pregnancy tests. A reliable pregnancy test wouldn't be designed for nearly another decade, and the first genetic test on a fetus wouldn't be complete until 1968. The being inserted the needle, and it was instant pain for Betty. She described it like being stabbed with a knife. The examiner assured her that it wouldn't hurt, but he was wrong. Seeing what agony she was in, the leader came over and waved his hand in front of Betty's face, which took the pain away instantly and earned the leader some trust with Betty, so much so that she felt comfortable enough to ask him questions after the procedure was done. 
In some abduction cases, the experiencer has their questions answered by their abductors. Betty was able to ask the leader a number of questions. This individual explained that they had only one examiner on board, and examinations had to be done one at a time. Once the examiner was done with Betty, he moved on to Barty. Betty was still trying to process it all. She was grateful, and she was hung up on the idea that she needed something to bring away with her to prove that it was all real. Now, this is when Betty noticed a rather large book on a cabinet nearby. The being told her to look around and that she could take something with her to serve as proof. She picked up the book and the being told her to look inside. The writing was not in English, and of it, Betty said, quote, It went up and down. It was different. It had short lines, and some were very thin, and some were medium, and some were heavy. They had some dots, and they had straight lines, and curved lines, end quote. The leader asked Betty if she thought she could read it, and she stated that she wasn't taking it to read. This was proof, and she was glad of it. Now, she wasn't able to leave the ship with it. After a long conversation with the remainder of the crew, the book was taken from Betty. She asked the leader where they were from. The leader asked her if she knew anything about the universe, and Betty said no. And like a teacher approaching a whiteboard, he withdrew a map from an opening of a wall and held it for Betty to see. A series of dots were scattered across the page. Some were tiny dots, while others were much larger. And on two of the larger bodies were lines that connected them. The leader explained that the solid lines were trade routes to other planets in their system, while the broken lines represented expeditions to others. The map has become the subject of contention for various skeptics. It has changed since her initial hypnosis sessions with Dr. Simon in 1964, in later years, she would describe looking at the map as if she were looking out a window. It was three feet wide and two feet long. Here is Betty speaking about the map on a television program. I had a special interest in one aspect of this since I, my field is astronomy. After one of the hypnosis sessions, uh, Betty drew from memory a sketch of a star map that her guide or the leader aboard the UFO showed to her. Actually, it was not a two-dimensional map at all, but a three, more like a three-dimensional hologram. I don't know if there's an opening in the wall or just what, but all of a sudden, here's the map. It didn't pull down or anything like that. And it was probably about uh, two by three feet. And it was... Uh, almost it was so realistic it was almost like looking at the sky and even uh, some of the objects even seemed to be slowly moving and he asked me if i knew where we were on the map and i told him no and he said well if i you know didn't know any basic information then it would be impossible for him to show me where they were from and with that, he put the star map, pushed something, and the map was gone. 
the two largest uh, stars appeared to be just uh, objects in the foreground, therefore they showed up large, and these appeared to be the base stars. There were he heavy lines running between these two stars, indicating heavy traffic, trade routes. In fact, the leader explained it that way. There were solid lines going out to several other stars where they apparently traveled, and then dotted lines or dashed lines going to others which were remote outposts, one visit to these stars or less frequent visits. Years later, Marjorie Fish, an Ohio school teacher, decided to take the, the star map and to see if it matched reality, to see if there really was a 12-star pattern like this in the heavens. Now, later, in the research of the star map, I, I was contacted by a school, at that time she was a school teacher by the name of Marjorie Fish in Ohio. And we wrote back and forth several times. And then she said she'd like to come here and talk to me in greater detail about the star map. And she spent several days with me, asked me numerous, numerous questions. And when she went home, she started building models. She took boxes, strings, and she started out and she put our solar system in the middle and started working out so many light years. So over a period of six years, she built uh, three-dimensional models of the sun's neighborhood of stars moving ever outward. And when she had finished, she had almost all the same stars in the same pattern that I had in the star map, except two were missing. And so she wasn't able to complete the research until our astronomers found these two stars in 1969. She had expected in the beginning to come up with uh, random, you know, easily uh, duplicate uh, random uh, patterns that they would show up uh, quite often looking like Betty Hills, but that was not the case. She didn't find any until the sixth year. And she discovered it by uh, lying on her back on the floor and looking up at an odd angle. The whole 12-star pattern flashed into view. All the stars have been identified and making it even less likely that this is a random choice. All 12 stars that are hooked up by solid lines or dashed lines turn out to be live candidate stars. They have spectra that are very similar to our own sun. Uh, they very are good candidates for planets, and the planets in turn would be good candidates for life. So what is the likelihood of finding 12 stars connected in this manner in this huge volume of space with 100 or more stars? And, and only these are the life candidate stars in this volume, and all of them have been connected as if visited by these intelligences. Benny recalls a rather funny moment when the beings discovered that Barney had dentures. While talking with the leader, they were interrupted by noise coming from the hallway. The examiner rushed into the room and started to examine Betty's teeth. She was confused by the event until the leader explained that Barney's teeth came out. She explained that he had to wear dentures following an incident with a grenade in 1944. But she also explained that when humans get older, sometimes they needed dentures, and the being became confused with the concept of old age. Betty was struggling to explain the concept of aging. 
It kind of feels like that one friend in school that kept saying why to the teacher just to piss them off. But the beings seemed to be as inquisitive about Betty and the human race as she was about them. She explained that she ate food, specifically meat, potatoes, and vegetables. The being inquired further, wondering exactly what a vegetable was. Betty explained and declared squash her favorite, and tried to explain it by describing its shape and color, until the being asked what yellow was. She tried to find something on the ship that was yellow, but failed in her mission. Shortly after, she was escorted out of the craft and back to the core. Barney's experience on the craft was a bit different. He experienced everything with the rest of his senses, except for sight. He kept his eyes shut the entire time. But this is Barney's experience on the ship. I felt my shoes being removed and my pants being opened. And I could hear this humming-like sound they seemed to be making. It was at this point that Barney described an object being inserted into his rectum rather quickly and being removed. He didn't describe feeling any pain associated with this, though. They looked at my back, and I could feel them touching my skin right down my back as if they were counting my spinal column. I felt something touch right at the base of my spine, like a finger pushing. A single finger. And I could only hear this... like sound, and then... I was turned over again, and my mouth was opened, and I could feel two fingers pulling it back. And then I heard as if some more men came in, I could hear them rustling around on the left side of the table I was laying on, and something scratched very lightly, like a stick on my arm. And then these men left, and what I thought were three men. Two that had brought me in, and the other one seemed to follow these two. I could tell that there was more than one person in the room, but only one man seemed to be moving around my body all the time. After their examinations, they were both escorted back to the car and positioned in it. Not gonna lie, this moment made me think of the times I positioned my Ghostbusters action figures inside my Ecto-1 car, and I got a little uneasy about this business. Uh, But we're a podcast here, and I suppose we have to keep going on. On the way to the car, Betty argued with the leader about the book, and that was when the being informed her that they would remember nothing of their experience. Betty was adamant that she would remember it. There was no way that she could forget it. But the leader came back, quote, Maybe you will remember. I don't know. I hope you don't, but maybe you will. But it won't do you any good if you do, because Barney won't. Barney won't remember a single thing, and not only that, if he should remember anything at all, he's going to remember it differently from you. And all you're going to do is get each other so confused, you won't know what's going on. It would be better if you forget anyway. One aspect I want to talk about before we leave the Hill's abduction memories is what the beings actually looked like. 
a lot of people try to point to the Hill abduction as the origin of the Greys, and while their abductors share many similarities, they don't truly look like Greys at all. The occupants of the UFO were shorter than the average human, including one that I will touch on briefly in a moment, but in 1967, painter David C. Baker approached the hills to paint some of the beings they interacted with, and these were the features they described. We'll present this like a bulleted list here. Enlarged slanted eyes that resembled a cat's eye. Wide-cheeked, weak-chinned. Enlarged cranial structure. Their facial features seemed to indicate that they didn't move. A membrane was observed near the mouth that would flutter when the creature spoke. Their eyes had a yellowish tinge to them. They had ear holes. No hair. A gray skin tone. Spindly legs and an enlarged chest. Baker went on to create four oil paintings, two of which can be found among the Hills collection at the University of New Hampshire. One aspect that is slightly troubling to this case is how much hypnosis Betty went through and how many different individuals conducted sessions. In 1980, Betty worked with Dr. James Harder of the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, and she disclosed that one of the beings was different from the others. It was this being that Betty feared most. He was more diminutive in size, about three and a half feet tall. His head resembled a basketball, and his enormous eyes wrapped slightly around his head. She compared his eyes to that of a wall gecko. In a letter addressed to an unnamed scientist, Betty claimed to fear this being most. She felt as if he looked at her in a menacing way. He lurked in the hallway just outside the exam room and became animated when the leader gave Betty permission to take the book. Looking at the being made Betty want to vomit, and it was this being that she truly believed was in charge and dubbed him the supervisor. The examiner's head was more akin to the shape of a human's. He was about four and a half feet tall and had several features on his face that made it seem bumpy. The leader looked more human than the rest. Betty called him the, quote, good-looking one. He was approximately five feet tall with a triangular-shaped head that tapered down to a small chin and jawbone. He had only a small mouth and nose, and it was this individual that the remainder of the crew most resembled. With the narrative now in place, the hypnosis sessions concluded, Dr. Simon made his assessment of the case, and while he believed the initial encounter on the road was genuine, he believed the craft to be of human origin. At the beginning of the episode, you heard Dr. Simon say that he was at a point where he either had to accept the extraterrestrial hypothesis or had to find something else to pin it on. He chose to target Betty's dreams and believed that Barney had absorbed her dreams as his memories of that September night as a form of empathy. He also believed the everyday anxieties of Barney's life helped lead to his belief in the abduction. In Walter Webb's updated report, released in 1965, he alluded to a theory Simon had about Betty and Barney, that their experience contained sexual symbolism, that the needle inserted into Betty's navel was anxiety over a barren womb, that the eyes of the leader were fears associated with their interracial marriage, and worst of all, that Barney's experience with the device attached to its genitals 
was an example of repressed homosexual desires. In other words, racist bullshit. In an issue of Fate magazine, Simon called it all a lie. But if it was, why did Webb include it in the report? Webb wrote the book on the Buffledge incident, and given its thoroughness, it's hard to picture him misquoting Dr. Simon. The Hills, however, did maintain a correspondence with Dr. Simon for a number of years. They did their best to continue on with their life. They got involved with social and community issues. Betty and Barney became envoys to the United Nations through their church. They were very active in the NAACP in the New England area. Barney would give speeches in many coastal states. And they worked tirelessly for Lyndon Johnson's political campaign, helping to register voters and organize students at the local university to further democratic causes. They did their best to put it all behind them. The villain of the story would enter the picture in August of 1965. Betty was contacted by their friend, Adele Dara, who informed the Hills that she had been interviewed by a Boston reporter, John Luttrell. Now, to put it kindly, Luttrell was a persistent fucker. Before speaking to Betty and Barney, he had interviewed many of their friends and family. He had interviewed NICAP members and got his hands on the report. He had a tape of a lecture the Hills were forced to give in 1963 in front of a UFO group. Luttrell violated the Hills' trust by misrepresenting himself to friends, family, and NICAP. In August, he contacted the Hills directly and asked to talk with them about their experience. He exuded confidence in what he knew about the Hills' story, but the couple ducked him at every turn. They expressed concern over how going public could ruin their job status and their work on social issues. Barney had recently been named to the U.S. Civil Rights Commission and the state's Human Rights Commission as well. The only other person that refused an interview was Walter Webb. Barney contacted two lawyers in order to prevent the story from being printed. But unfortunately, there were no grounds to stop the story. In the early morning hours of Monday, October 25, 1965, Barney received phone calls from Europe asking him about his UFO experience. Luttrell had completely doxed the hills, and the media onslaught was unleashed. The front page of the Boston Traveler read, UFO chiller, did they seize couple? In 1965, UFOs had seen a bit of a resurgence in the press. Though the press had long since been dismissive of UFO accounts since 1947, the press that year started to feel like the government was keeping something from them. In 1965, especially in the Exeter area of New Hampshire, there was a flap that caught the attention of everyone. By the time that Barney arrived home, the press had swarmed their home. By the time he arrived home, the press had swarmed their property looking for an exclusive interview. The New Hampshire Division of Welfare turned reporters away when Betty arrived at work the next day. The night before, they had to take refuge at Pease Air Force Base officer Ben Sweat's house, who knew the Hill's story well. And in fact, 
was the first person the Hills reached out to for hypnosis. They took refuge wherever they could until they finally agreed to hold a press conference. And on Sunday, November 7th, 400 people packed into the Pierce Memorial Unitarian Universalist Church in Dover, New Hampshire, to hear the Hills speak about their experience. They would not attest to their abduction account, stating that they couldn't prove that it was objectively true. Barney expressed to the audience that Luttrell had violated their privacy in publishing the story. One of the people in attendance that night was the writer John G. Fuller. He had been investigating the UFO incidents in Exeter when he caught wind of the story. He reached out to the Hills, offering to publish it. And the Hills ultimately agreed, and used the opportunity to set the record straight. Royalties were split between Fuller, the Hills, and Dr. Simon, who had considerable input on The Interrupted Journey, the book that came from the Hills' experience. When it was finally published a year later, it became a New York Times bestseller and remained in print for over 20 years. What followed was a media tour that lasted for over a year. The Hills were seen on TV, doing as many as four programs a day, as well as radio and newspapers all over the country. The Hills were celebrities, and they used it to help bolster their social causes while lecturing the public on their UFO encounter. It was also during this time that the Hills were truly tested. The couple were beset by a number of health problems. Betty was besieged by polyps on her vocal cords, which required surgery and altered her voice forever into a rasp. She also suffered from pericarditis, which sidelined her for a number of weeks. Barney saw his fair share of health problems. While driving to one event, he suffered from severe vertigo. He checked into a hospital after the talk, but the doctors could find no cause for it. It was also during this time that Barney was pushing himself as hard as he could. He was working a full-time job, devoting as much time as he could to the NAACP and the many other groups that he was a part of. He was lecturing intensely, and he just couldn't stop. On the morning of February 25th, 1969, following a game of pool in their home basement, Barney felt as if he had been stung by a bee in the back of his neck. An ambulance was called. He seemed all right. By the time the doctor arrived, he had slipped into a coma after suffering a severe stroke, and by 7.20 that evening, Barney was gone. On March 1st, a large delegation assembled to honor Barney, including his co-workers at the Portsmouth Post Office, members of the NAACP, city, county, and state politicians. They all came out to honor him. A week later, on her first trip out of the house since the funeral, Betty drove to Kingston to visit her mother. On the way back, she witnessed two bright red lights. She slowed her car to get a better look at them. She initially thought them to be tower lights at first, 
But then they came closer, shifting over power lines, until this craft finally stopped in front of her car. The object was the same one that her and Barney had both seen in the White Mountains all those years before. Betty exited her car. She could see the interior lights and figures looking out at her. She presumed that the occupants were curious about Barney's death and spoke to them, told the beings that he was buried at a nearby cemetery. The craft rocked back and forth, acknowledging her words, before moving off slowly in the direction of the cemetery. Betty had numerous sightings in the years following Barney's death. Perhaps they were signs from Barney himself that he was okay. Betty would continue her work with UFO research until her death on October 23, 2004. The Hill's experience was seismic, and I hope we've honored that here. This episode was written and recorded by me. Thanks so much for listening. Special thanks again to Jennifer Taylor of the In Defense of Liberty and Vanished Amelia Earhart podcasts, as well as TJ Cunahan of 4170 Solutions for lending their voices to this episode. Last week, I announced our special giveaway. And one thing that was expressed by listeners is that some folks don't use Apple Podcasts. So we're going to extend our book giveaway out a little bit. If you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, please do. And then take a screenshot and send us an email at ourstrangeskies at gmail.com. If you don't have Apple Podcasts, here's what I want you to do. Recommend the podcast on social media, screenshot it, and send us an email, and you will be entered in the contest. The last day for entries will be on February 21st. Visit us over at OurStrangeSkies.com to find show notes, links to our store and Patreon page, as well as our contact info and social media links. Our theme song was composed by Big Cats, with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. And our logo and web design is by the great Desdemona. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies. We're over the skies of New Hampshire. In gray we trust.
Media.